Our scripture reading comes from 1 Kings 19, verses 1 through 15. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed the prophets with the sword. When Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. He got up and fled for his life. He came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there. But he himself went on a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a solitary broom tree. He asked that he might die. It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Get up and eat. And he looked, and there at his head was a, was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came to him a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. He got up, he ate and drank, and then he went in the strength of the Lord forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. At that place he came into a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. He said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks into pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the fire was not in the fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard this, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance to the cave. There, then there came a voice to him and that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on the way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel as king over Aram. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. All right. Um, before we begin a first, which is preaching with a mask on, 
Um, I want to take an opportunity to um, really make sure that we recognize um, at 4th of July, this kind of uh, weekend of celebration, uh, those who have served uh, in the armed forces. Um, I, I know there's not a lot of folk here because of uh, quarantine and everything else, but I'd love if you have um, served in the armed forces in your life, uh, would you stand? Because we would love to appreciate you for your uh, commitment and your service. Um, one of the things that really kind of spoke to me um, as I came out of seminary, um, I, you know, went to my first appointment and they asked me to go uh, say the prayer at the Veterans Day um, uh, Remembrance. And I had no idea what in the world am I going to do at the Veterans Day um, observance. Um, and, and so as I was thinking about it and reading about it, it came very clear to me that um, a message for those of you who have served in the armed services, those who are veterans, uh, those who have lost their lives uh, giving that gift um, in service to the country, um, I find that uh, Jesus's words, uh, no greater love have a man than this than to lay down his life for his friends. Uh, to me, that's a powerful, um, if you want to call it object lesson, uh, when we remember and value the service that others have given for the country. Um, it's a powerful thing. Uh, in fact, I think friendship is a really um, important part of faith. So much so uh, that our next sermon series will be about friendology. Um, it'll be about uh, finding uh, the power of friendship um, as a way to serve God and a way to be faithful to the call. And so I hope that you'll uh, join us over the next couple of weeks. So, I have friends who are vegetarians. I have friends who are meatitarians. But I have to say, if I were to subscribe to one or another, I would be a breaditarian. I, I mean, there is something so delightful about bread. Uh, English muffins or bagels in the morning, a thick sliced wheat uh, for sandwich. Um, uh, at dinner, either a, a homemade pizza dough uh, or, or some beautiful handmade uh, crescent rolls. Now, I'm not uh, a snob when it comes to bread. Uh, I'm happy to crack open the Pillsbury uh, tube and lay those out as well. Um, for a while at our house, we baked bread. We had a bread machine uh, and we used every recipe we could come up with. Um, we loved all those recipes, kind of tasting and seeing uh, and experiencing different kinds of bread. In fact, Grace still makes bagels um, with the bread machine. It's fascinating. Um, what's funny about homemade bread is that it always has a tendency to disappear before you want it to. I, I don't know about you, we started putting ours into a bread box just to make it harder for the thieves to get it, right? Um, but we also found that uh, if I were to make a loaf of bread and I was home alone, maybe the girls have gone visiting a family or uh, off on a camp or something, that, that bread, as much as I tried, uh, it would end up going stale or moldy by the end of the day. Homemade bread didn't have those preservatives that would keep it shelf stable. Um, when bread goes stale, it's because it's just been exposed too much to the air. It has dried out. It has sat there too long, if you will. Bread gets stale 
uh, in that moment because it's not being used. It's not being enjoyed. Over the last three weeks, we have talked about different ways in which we get stuck. We started with Nicodemus. Remember, Nicodemus was stuck because he had questions, but he wouldn't take the next step to ask somebody who could give him the answer. We also talked then um, about uh, James and John, the sons of thunder in the second week, about this um, importance that we understand that our faith is not just about the activity that we do or about the power that we have, but rather it is about the relationship of service and sacrifice to Jesus. And then um, last week, um, Anthony offered uh, our sermon around the life of Peter, uh, recognizing that Peter got stuck in the moment. He, he got stuck with his past. He couldn't figure out how to commit completely to Jesus. And so Anthony uses the uh, hero's journey to describe uh, the trajectory of Peter as he finally sits across from Jesus at breakfast after the resurrection and Jesus asks him the same question three times. Do you love me, Peter? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. Then feed my sheep. Sometimes getting unstuck means that we have to recommit to the call, recommit to the service and sacrifice. And then today, today we talk about stale saints Folk that seem to have all of faith under their thumb. They have been there, done that, and pulled off amazing moments of faithful action. But what happens when that whole experience bleeds away? Uh, is it possible that over the quarantine, you have found yourself a little exposed? Maybe a, a, a little um, set aside Maybe you have found that your faith has gotten a little stale. If so, don't, don't be surprised. A lot of us are. Um, it's true to say that among social science research, that one out of every 10 people in the pews this morning, all across the United States, are either stuck or um, unsatisfied or angry. It's not uncommon for people to come, to continue to come and sit in the pews over and over again, even when things get stale. Because if you found water in that one place before, surely there might be water there again. And you also shouldn't be surprised to find out that um, people in the Bible get stuck as well. Our scripture passage for today comes from 1st and 2nd Kings. Uh, this is the story of the kings over Israel and Judah. It's a historical discussion of the faithfulness of Israel to God. Our story starts a little bit before the passage that Rhonda read. Uh, it is the story of King Ahab, who succeeds his father Omri uh, as the king of Israel. Now, um, it was said about Omri that he did things that were not pleasing in the sight of God. So Ahab didn't have a very good role model. Um, and so Ahab comes into power, and he also struggles uh, with being faithful. In fact, King Ahab marries Jezebel, uh, who was a daughter of a king of Syria, of Sidon, um, where it was the, the home place for Baal worship, the worship of a pagan god. And so Jezebel brings that pagan uh, uh, religion back to Israel, and Ahab, I mean, I, I'm sure my, my parents, I had a, my dad was Catholic and my mom was Southern Methodist. Um, somebody had to win, right? 
And you can tell who won, <laughs> right? And so Ahab brings Jezebel back, takes her as his wife, and somebody had to win. And so Ahab finds himself worshiping Baal, uh, the um, pagan god. Um, it is said in scripture that Ahab uh, did yet more to provoke Yahweh, the God of Israel, to anger uh, than all the kings of Israel before him. So previously, Elijah had won this great kind of battle of the prophets. Did you hear um, Rhonda uh, talking about it and Anthony as well? Um, it was this challenge from Jezebel um, that they would uh, line up all the prophets of Baal on one side of the football field and all the prophets of Israel on the other side of the football field, and they would stack up wood and uh, put a, um, a cow on top of it, and then both sides would pray, and the one that sparked into fire would be the one who won, the God who, uh, who wins. Um, now, along the lines here, um, God has sent a drought to punish King Ahab. So everything is dry and just ready for tinder to be sparked. But um, Elijah says, let's do this um, on hard mode, okay? Um, and so uh, what he decides is he says, I will douse all of my wood in water if you'll do the same. And so they did. And both began to pray. The 400 prophets of Baal and Elijah. And you know the end of the story. Uh, fire comes down from heaven and lights the altar on fire uh, for uh, God's side. And uh, the burnt offering is crisped. And then uh, Elijah puts to death by the sword all 400 prophets of Baal. Now, um, Ahab and Jezebel decided this was a great time to go to their summer home. Um, and so off they went to their summer home. And over dinner that night, uh, Jezebel tells Ahab all the horrible things that Elijah did. He says, can you believe all my prophets have been killed? It's not right. And so she tells Ahab, can you tell who wears the pants in this family? Um, so uh, Jezebel tells Ahab, I'm going to send a messenger to kill Elijah and to kill him dead. Um, and uh, she says, if this doesn't happen, may the gods do to me what I wish we could do to Elijah. Pretty powerful stuff. Now, if I'm Elijah, I'm thinking I'm at the top of my game. I mean, fire from heaven, um, making wood that's doused in water, burst into flame. You know, I have enough arm strength to put 400 prophets of Baal to death. This is a high water mark. I mean, if you were doing a, a list of high scores for being prophet for Israel, this one's way up there. But instead, Elijah runs. Uh, Elijah leaves. Elijah runs so far. He runs 95 miles. Here we go. He runs 95 miles away. Um, he runs to Beersheba. The summer palace for King Ahab was in the north of Israel. And what, uh, um, what Elijah does is he runs all the way to the south, to the very boundary of the traditional promised land. And in fact, he goes just a little bit further to Beersheba so that he wouldn't be in the kingdom that Ahab um, uh, rules, but rather just over the border in Judah. If he is running away from his problems, we get the message, 95 miles. 
And so there in the wilderness, Elijah, the prophet of God, who put 400 prophets of Baal to death and won the great prophet off, he prays for God to take his life. Elijah is a stale saint. He has run out of mountains to climb and enemies to conquer. And he is convinced that Jezebel will get him. And there is nothing that God can do. So while he's there in the wilderness, after he has prayed uh, for God to take his life, um, he ends up falling asleep. And an angel comes and says, get up and eat. And so he eats. Um, And he goes back to sleep. And then another angel comes and says, get up and eat. Now, you might say, wait a minute, is he a glutton? No, biblical scholars say that, that this is how long he had to rest and how much energy he had to recoup after this amazing, miraculous, faithful action that he had done. And it's not the first time that Elijah's ever been fed miraculously, right? He was fed in a drought uh, by ravens, and he was fed uh, at that same drought uh, by a widowed woman who had eaten the last of her food and was laying down to die, and she prays to God, and there's extra food. Elijah's used to God taking care of him. And so um, Elijah, um, and so God, um, Elijah goes to a cave and holes up in it. And uh, God shows up and says, what are you doing? This is probably an interesting question from God. Why are you here? And Elijah begins with a list of things that have gone wrong. He he says that, um, you know, Jezebel's going to kill me and nobody in Israel is faithful and all these things stink. And if Elijah was living in my house growing up, you would end that sentence with nobody likes me. Everybody hates me and I'm going to just go eat worms. Anybody familiar with that? Elijah's depressed. And so um, God decides, I'm going to show you, right? Um, Elijah says, um, I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And so um, scripture says how God decides to remedy Elijah's depression. And and let's be honest that it's not all bad, right? Right. Um, In fact, in scripture, um, the truth of the matter is, is that many people have been added to the faith of Yahweh, um, that 400 prophets have been put to the sword, that there is more good going on, but Elijah is so stale, he can't see it. So scripture says that um, God says to Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain before Yahweh. Behold, Yahweh passed by, and a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before Yahweh. But Yahweh was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake, but Yahweh was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire passed, but Yahweh was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. Let's stop right there. Wow. I mean, when God wants to show up, he can do it in a dramatic way. Elijah is familiar with this. He has read the stories. He has heard about the power of God. But I want you to notice in this next verse, it says in verse 13, it was so when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Did you you catch that? God's putting on fireworks outside to bolster Elijah's mood. 
And Elijah's inside binging Netflix with a hoodie around his head. Right? I mean, he comes out of the cave and he takes the hoodie off. And he's like, or maybe also the, the AirPods come out. You, you saying something? You saying something? Elias is a stale saint. In verse 14, it says, um, well, and behold, a voice came to Elijah and said, what are you doing here? And this is again where Elijah says, things aren't right and I shouldn't be here. That still small voice is powerful. That still small voice requires us to get still. It requires us to listen. It requires us to shut out the rest of the things around us. I I have to really identify with Elijah because he essentially says, they are all out to get me. They don't like me. They don't like my preaching. They don't think I keep enough office hours. They don't think I'm engaged. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. I was talking about somebody else, wasn't I? But when we start talking about they, everyone, is it really everyone? For Elijah, is everyone out to get him? No. Sometimes what we need to do as stale saints is to break down the everyone into individual names so that we can count who supports us and cares about us. And here, Elijah is being supported not only by angels, but by the power of God. So Elijah hears. He hears, he listens, and then God gives him instructions. Here's what we're going to do. You're going to anoint so-and-so as a king over this place, so-and-so as a king over that place, and whoever escapes the sword of the first king will be killed by the second king. And whoever escapes the sword of the second king will be killed by the prophet. You're in retirement now. It's okay. I wonder if you have ever felt like a stale saint. I wonder if you've ever flown too close to the sun, that you've started more than you can accomplish, that you have been worn out by the work in front of you, and that the success behind you no longer fuels your direction. Elijah was a stale saint. It's no different than you or me. I've seen great uh, saintly church members, church leaders, fade off into the distance because they got tired of the combativeness and conflictedness of a church where they want to, you know, spill blood on the sanctuary floor deciding what color the carpet should be. I've watched wonderful small group leaders who had this ability to disciple others into the faith, just head off down the road because others weren't able to sacrifice as much as they were. I mean, you'd like to think that if you get to that place of being a saint with a little S, that it gets easier for you. But Elijah is a good example that saints can get stale. And if we think about stale bread, I, I, I was amazed to figure this out. Um, that stale bread can be rejuvenated. All it takes to rejuvenate stale bread, any uh, YouTube chef can tell you, is a little bit of heat and a little bit of water. If you damp a paper uh, towel and wrap it around the bread and place it in the microwave for just a little bit, that that heat and that water rejuvenates the bread to where you will almost feel like it is fresh bread from the smell that comes to you. Same thing's true with saints. 
Saints need an opportunity for space and time to recharge. They need a chance to remember what God has done for them. And they need a chance to remember what really fuels them. It's said that Mother Teresa, in the last 10 years of her life, felt as if the prayers that she would offer would never break through the ceiling to God. She felt like God was giving her the silent treatment. And I'm uh, in no way count myself as a saint, but after 20 years of uh, ministry, I found that a three-month sabbatical gave me the opportunity to experience some heat and some water and to be rejuvenated. It's a powerful thing to try to figure out how to stay in that right place with God. And so for those of you who feel stuck over the last three months, I want to encourage you, like Nicodemus, Take a step forward and ask a question. Or like James and John, the sons of thunder, make it not about your activity, but rather about being in the presence of Jesus. Or maybe it's like Peter, you've got a laundry list of things you've done, but you've yet to sit face to face with Jesus and accept the commitment that he offers you. Or maybe you're an Elijah, a stale saint, ready to be rejuvenated, but you just can't see how it'll ever happen. God is the God of uh, unsticking us, a God of new beginnings, a God of continued opportunities. And God calls us to take our next step as we follow him in our faith journey. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.